0: everybody for coming. I'm Scott Gelbach. I'm a professor in the political science department. I'm also director of KRIKA. Uh, Let me introduce today's speaker. Today's speaker is Emily Barron. Uh, Emily is an associate professor of history at Middle Tennessee State University, and her research focuses on the shifting contours of of dissent and religious toleration in the Soviet empire and its successor states. And, And so this has taken various forms. She has a uh, a book on Jehovah's Witnesses in the Soviet Union. She'll be presenting, as I understand it, some of that work today. Uh, she also has uh, some work in progress on Soviet Pentecostals in the late Cold War, another, another book project on the extension of Soviet power in, in post-war Ukraine, lots of really interesting stuff. We're really looking forward to your talk. Thanks for being here, and the floor is yours. All right, so I'll just jump right in. Uh, a few weeks ago, Uh, If you'd been watching, it wasn't a big news bulletin, so you could have missed it, but there was a rather strange news bulletin out of Russia. Western news agencies were reporting that Russian officials had arrested several Jehovah's Witnesses. And, you know, it wasn't for evangelizing door to door without a permit, it wasn't for selling religious literature, some other low level offense you might be picturing. No, apparently, again, if you read the reports, five Jehovah's Witnesses in the city of Kirov had been stockpiling what the Daily Mail called an arsenal of weapons, along with cash. Now, at first glance, this seems a little bizarre, particularly if you know anything about the witnesses. You know they don't even serve in the military uh, out of neutrality. And on further review, the Russian state's evidence against these men being some sort of dangerous weapons dealers didn't amount to much at all. It turns out the so-called arsenal was pretty unimpressive, to put it rather mildly. Basically, one of the men um, had been kind of a hobbyist in this private organization that goes around uh, the Russian countryside and looks for World War II era relics. So you know, seven years after the war, there's still a fair amount of just World War II stuff out there in Russia because you know of the enormity of the conflict. And you know some of this is hobbyist collecting. Some of this is getting rid of stuff that could be dangerous, regardless. this is what was happening. And so a man in Kirov had done some trophy hunting, found a landmine and a couple of grenades, and this is what Russian officials seized upon when they told the press we've got Jehovah's Witnesses here who are gathering arms against the state, which is how it was reported in the media. Now, if that seems a little weak, I'll tell you that the guy who owned them wasn't even a Jehovah's Witness, he just happened to be married uh, to one, so the whole story starts to look kind of silly, except then you remember that there's five people sitting in jail because of this. And now it's a little less ridiculous and a little more disturbing. What actually happened is that Russian authorities went around to witness homes in the city searched through their personal belongings and arrested five men after determining that some of the families had copies of religious literature and some had what they considered too much cash. And of course, one of the families had this landmine from World War II, although that man wasn't arrested since clearly what mattered here was not the weapons, but whether or not he was a Jehovah's Witness. And so now five men are sitting in detention, being framed as essentially terrorists, and all because they identify as witnesses. How do we get to this moment? in time where the Russian state would round up its own citizens just for being members of the witnesses and claim that they're extremists who intend to destroy the state. What has been happening in Russia that would make an incident like this possible, uh, where citizens could face years in prison for collecting a few relics, or in this case, knowing someone who did? The short answer requires us to look at events from April of last year, which is when the Russian Supreme Court declared that Jehovah's Witnesses to be an extremist, this is the term, extremist organization. This April 2017 decision places Jehovah's Witnesses on the same legal footing as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. The goal of my talk today is kind of make sense of that. right? Explain how we get to that decision, and what does it mean for witnesses, what does it mean for Russia. And to answer some of these questions, I'll reconstruct briefly the history of witnesses in uh, Russia and the events leading up to the court decision. And so to understand the 2017 decision, we have to first understand how you get 170,000 plus Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. That's the closest accurate uh, figure today. And for that, we have to again go back to World War II. Because prior to that war, there really hadn't been Jehovah's Witnesses formally. There had been a handful of citizens who maybe had sent away for religious literature from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. That's the formal organization that runs uh, The Witnesses based in the United States till recently in Brooklyn. Already in the 1920s, it had offices in Europe, um, major European centers, but in the Soviet Union, there wasn't really a witness organization to speak of prior to the war. It's the war that changes that because as a result of the war, the Soviet Union moves its border significantly westward into the Baltic States, into Eastern Poland, into a chunk of Czechoslovakia, Eastern Romania. And all of these territories had witnesses. So really, the Soviet Union comes to the witnesses. The witnesses don't really go into the Soviet Union. And the problem with the Soviet state here is that the witnesses don't make very good Soviet citizens. Now, I don't mean for the record just to be clear that witnesses are bad citizens. Uh, witnesses will be quick to point out that they pay their taxes, and they do their best to abide by the laws of the land. You're not going to find a lot of witnesses in prisons in the United States for shoplifting, burglary, tax evasion, etc. Now, obviously, that's true. Um, they've earned their reputation for being law abiding. But it's not the whole truth when we talk about authoritarian states. And the reason for that is that these states have tended to make it illegal to be witnesses. And what I mean by that is witnesses don't break the law in cases where we might consider the law annoying or inconvenient. right? Like They may try not to double park, right, speed any more than the rest of us, um, that sort of thing. But in the case of the Soviet Union, you have this whole host of legislation that basically makes it impossible to just be a Jehovah's Witness and practice your faith. And those are the laws that witnesses don't follow. And that's what I mean when I say they don't make very good Soviet citizens. So let me just give some concrete examples. Soviet Union required military service out of every able-bodied man. Uh, witnesses don't do that. Uh, they believe, again, in what they call neutrality. So when witnesses came of age in the Soviet Union, you know, they're confronted with this situation where they know there's no way that they're going to be able to join the military, pick up a weapon, defend the motherland. That's going to bring them in conflict with the law. Another example. Soviet laws made it illegal for you to go around and speak about your faith with other people. The law allowed you to do that about atheism, so you could go around and talk about atheism, so you couldn't talk about religion. And witnesses, again, consider it a requirement of their faith to engage in that sort of evangelism. If you've had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, it was probably in the act of evangelism. If you've ever had someone come to your door and hand you a copy of The Watchtower, The Wake, their magazines, that was, you know, you were encountering a witness in the act of evangelism. If a witness did this to you in the Soviet Union, they would have been breaking the law. Because again, you couldn't do that. Third example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't vote. Um, And we tend to think of the Soviet Union as a pretty non-democratic place, but they did vote. They actually really cared about voting. Um, It was really important that the Soviet Union was perceived as a democracy, that it engaged in the democratic act of voting. And so they have really high voter turnout. Um, nearly 100%. Wasn't a lot of options, but really high turnout. And so everyone was expected to go to the polls. It was really important that Jehovah's Witnesses didn't do that. They didn't cast ballots in Soviet elections. And so doing that put them on the Soviet Union's radar. Technically that wasn't illegal, but as soon as you said anything about doing that to someone else, that was illegal. You couldn't talk about not fulfilling your civic duties with someone else without breaking the law. In short, there was a whole and these are just a couple examples. There's a whole host of things you couldn't do that witnesses do in the matter of just practicing their faith um, that brought them into conflict with Soviet laws and in the Stalin period at least when they first come into the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union goes to them these carry really stiff penalties Um, one article in the criminal code in particular, article 58, criminalized any sort of activity that the state called anti-Soviet. When we think about Soviet repression, it's so much about article 58. This is how millions of people are prosecuted under this one statute. And you know, in the 1930s, over an, almost a million people were executed under Article 58 violations. Now, by the late 1940s, they're no longer applying the death penalty. But it's 25 years of hard labor in prison if you're found to be in violation of Article 58. Um, and 25 years for most adults in the late 1940s, that might as well have been a death sentence, uh, because you were about to be sent to some faraway prison camp under not ideal conditions to do backbreaking labor for the rest of your adulthood. If you were lucky, you were gonna come back home old and weak and see your family again. Or maybe you wouldn't because a lot of these cases carried penalties of exile. So you were gonna go from prison 25 years in the future to some exile location. All of this to say, is to say that almost everything the witnesses did was an Article 58 violation. Um, so within just a few years of there being Soviet witnesses, there are hundreds of Soviet witnesses behind barbed wire. For actions that are basically practicing your faith. Now, all of this terrible repression didn't eliminate witnesses. It just shipped them all over the Soviet Empire. And the spread of Jehovah's Witnesses out of the borderlands is made much, much worse, if you're thinking from the Soviet Union's perspective, by their own actions, the state's own actions, because in '49 and '51, the state kind of gets sick of taking an individual approach to the witnesses and just issues a secret police order to send the military out to all of the borderline communities that had witnesses, and in the middle of the night, on two different nights, two years apart. Round up every single man, woman, and child in those families and put them on trains and send them out to distant locations, um, largely around Siberia and a little bit in Central Asia. And they were sent out there and told, that's it, you're never coming back. I mean, every single person in the community, people had just been born, people that were near the end of their life, people that had at some point been involved in the witnesses or hadn't. There's a lot of mistakes made because this is very hurriedly done. And so now you have witnesses everywhere in the Soviet Union. This is the grim reality of life for Soviet witnesses. But it does improve dramatically, I would say, in the decades after Stalin's death. Eventually, the state gets rid of these forced settlement communities. Um, it gives early release to nearly everyone who had gotten a 25-year sentence. What it doesn't do is say, we shouldn't have done that. Right? Like It doesn't say, we shouldn't have arrested you. It doesn't say, we shouldn't have exiled you. It doesn't say, here's your property back, we made a mistake. You know, We talk about rehabilitation sometimes in the Soviet period. The state actually goes back through some of these cases. That's not the situation for the witnesses. So they're still illegal, but they exist in the Soviet Union. And they continue to break the law and just hope the state didn't notice or didn't have the resources to enforce all of these laws all of the time. And that's not a bad strategy, actually. Um, but it didn't always work, and when it didn't work, Witnesses still had to face harassment from officials, uh, harassment at their work, harassment on their kids when they went to school, and occasionally still in the court system. Uh, Witnesses still get tried and arrested and imprisoned in the post-Dolum period, but just for much shorter periods. And this brings me to an important point. What the Soviet state does to witnesses is inhumane, cruel, a violation of their human rights, but it's not unique to the Soviet period. The witnesses have faced some sort of pushback from pretty much every single country in the world where they exist. And it's not just about intolerance from authoritarian states. I mean, obviously, witnesses are illegal in places like Iran and North Korea, but witnesses have faced serious challenges to the right to practice in what we would consider democratic states, including our own. Uh, And this is particularly relevant recently because of the Colin Kaepernick situation, the national anthem protests um, in the United States, right? Some of the articles that have looked at the Colin Kaepernick thing mention the Jehovah's Witnesses, but a lot don't. And that's really a shame because they have a lot to do with the historical legacy and background on your right to not engage in public displays of patriotism. Witnesses actually, American Witnesses, know more than most about what it means not to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, not to sing the national anthem, and they know about the consequences for those decisions. Because in the 1940s, uh, American Witness children went to schools Uh, public schools and said they wouldn't say the Pledge of Allegiance, and they were told they couldn't go to school anymore. Um, They were sent home and said, if you don't want to say it, you can't be here. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1940, and the court decided against the witnesses. So, in 1940, American witnesses were not allowed in our school system. Uh, For three years, um, they attended basically home schools without any public resources. And it's only in 1943, which is actually a pretty quick reversal for the Supreme Court, I to say. Uh, the Supreme Court reversed itself and said, no, American citizens, including children, do have the right to sit out public displays of patriotism. So I mean, this is a side note, but it's kind of disappointing um, to read news articles today in 2018 or 2017 or 2016 that describe American high schools telling their students they don't have a right to not stand for the national anthem or to kneel, because they absolutely do. It's a Supreme Court decision. It was, you know, 70 years ago um, and that's been decided um, and so students should know that. To quote from the 1943 decision, compulsory unification of opinions achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. So the schools issue is just one area where American witnesses ran into problems. Witnesses actually went to our Supreme Court um, nearly two dozen times, um, just and, and recently too, to protect their right to evangelize and to hand out religious literature in particular. Moreover. At the same time that American witness children were being kicked out of public schools, adult witnesses who evangelized on our streets were being attacked and beaten by mobs. And those two things are, co- are not coincidental, right? There's a connection there. Because when court systems say it's okay to discriminate, um, that transfers into society as well. And that um, obviously is occurring in Russia today. That's very much the situation. So. In the wake of the Supreme Court decision, there's been increasing hostility, I would say legal cover for increasing hostility to witnesses. If We want to stick to the schools in Russia. I think this was last year. um, A young girl was told by her principal that if she wanted to keep talking about her faith in the classroom, she would just be kicked out and expelled. She couldn't come back to school. Um, In another case, this was in Moscow, um, a teacher was berating um, two of her students who were witnesses. And the mother went to the school to complain. And the principal said, look, your kids and you are a bunch of extremists. right? So in, in all of these incidents, we see justifications for these actions by pointing to court decisions. And before I go more into that present situation, though, we have to remember the Soviet Union collapsed in 1981. And Putin only enters the national scene a decade later. So there's this insignificant chunk, of, or not insignificant chunk of time, between those two events, where the witnesses enjoyed a brief period of relative toleration um, between, being declared anti-Soviet, and then now being declared extremist. In that period, the 1990s, they get registered at the federal level, they buy property, they rent property, they start to evangelize, they go door to door, um, they print literature, um, religious literature, they ship that in. And this would have been just a huge transformation for Russian or Soviet Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, you have people who had never met More than a couple dozen people who belong to their faith, you know, never seen a color copy of the religious literature that they've studied for decades, maybe grown up in a forced settlement community out in Siberia, um, and now they're sitting in a rented sports stadium in the center of town, surrounded by thousands of other people that share the same faith, reading like brand new literature that's just been passed out, and I think equally important, not looking over their shoulder for someone to say, like, you can't do this, you can't be here, you're not allowed to do this. Um, You can imagine in that kind of environment, it's a lot easier to be a witness, it's a lot easier to go out and evangelize, and understandably, it's a period of significant witness growth. It's hard to say exactly what that growth looks like, because we don't have great statistics for the Soviet period, obviously, for reasons you can imagine, right? We we can't get an exact read on how many Jehovah's Witnesses were in the Soviet Union. We can say that by 2000, there's about 110,000 Russian Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and that's just Russia, so I'm not even talking about the larger post-Soviet environment. This growth is part of a broader surge in religious activity among Russian citizens. It's not just the witnesses out there evangelizing or um, being able to speak about their faith. Even a more mainstream religion, you know, the Baptists, the Orthodox Church, who ostensibly were legal in the Soviet Union, it's a whole different kind of legal. Um, there were tons of things you couldn't do even if you were legal in the Soviet Union that you can now do. So it's real religious freedom for the first time. And of course, most Russian citizens aren't believers in the 1990s. So for them, this is a time to shop around, consider your options, right? Lots of people attended different churches, talked to different missionaries that they might have encountered on the street or at their doorstep, bought books on religion, books on esoterica, books on tarot cards, on astrology, on mysticism, you know, kind of, there's there's a marketplace we talk about in the 1990s for religion. And some settle into one faith tradition. Others put together a, a series of faith beliefs that make sense to them. Lots of people don't settle into anything at all. Um, Russia's still today pretty secular. The Russian Orthodox Church is part of this religious marketplace, and it has to compete just like everyone else for customers, if we're going to use the analogy, which it really doesn't like doing. In its minds, and from the Orthodox perspective, this was Russian territory that meant Orthodox territory. Russia had been Orthodox um, for a thousand years, Plus years at this point. The thousandth year anniversary was 1988. Um, and for them, the end of Soviet repression ought to have meant that the Orthodox Church had, a ch- had its chance to kind of reconfigure itself, reacquaint people with it, let people come back into the faith. And here you had large, in their minds, largely foreign missionaries coming in and exploiting a situation um, in which they were distinctly vulnerable. And it's that kind of perspective that led the church and also individual orthodox citizens and others to begin to lobby the state to make changes to this kind of open marketplace. Ultimately, those demands are pretty successful. So um, in the late 1990s, there's a new religious law that gets passed that does a lot of what the church wanted. Like, for instance, in the preamble, it declares orthodox, orthodoxy central to Russia's heritage. It sets up kind of religions that are traditional to Russia. It puts together a much more complicated registration process. And it lists a whole host of reasons for which you could get denied registration. And this is where the witnesses get their first challenge. This is kind of the first big pushback against the witnesses. Because there's this strange loophole in the law that says the law can allow the federal government to register you. So the federal government can say, you're OK. You met all the requirements of the law. But then a locality, a city, for example, can say, no, we don't agree. We don't. What happens for the witnesses is they get federal registration, again, really pretty quickly without too much problems, but then the city of Moscow says, hold on, we don't want to register you. And the result is this multi-year court battle uh, takes forever, Um, and there's multiple stages and, and decisions and pauses, and then it starts again. But the end result is that in the early 2000s, the witnesses ultimately lose a court battle in Moscow, and the city has earned the right to not register them. And so way before we have the extremist decision, we've got a situation in Russia where, in at least one place, some official is saying, you don't have a right to be here. The difference between the early 2000s and now, the the current situation, is that the federal government was, relatively speaking, tolerant in the earlier period. When the witnesses ran into problems, it was more often local officials. A, A local official didn't want to grant a permit, didn't want to allow building, didn't want to allow rental space. Local harassment by residents when witnesses went out to evangelize. But at least technically speaking, in the 90s, the federal government was saying, you, ha- you can do this. You have a right to be here. We're registering you. You're recognized. What unravels that is the Putin presidency. When terrorist attacks take place in Russia in the late 1990s, it's Putin that puts together the state's response. It's Putin that engineers the second war in Chechnya, um, which ends up being much more successful than the first. In general, Putin comes onto the scene, gets himself known to the Russian public as this tough guy who's going to defeat terrorism. That's, people didn't know who he was a, you know, a year before they go to elect him president. And the way they knew about him was in the middle of a state security crisis, where he was coming across as a guy in charge, making decisions, in some cases using a real tough language. You know, He was Mr. Anti-terrorism. He was the guy that was going to stop this from happening again. There's a lot of jokes about the shirtless Putin memes, right? <laughs> You know, But when we talk about Putin in relationship to his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, a man, nobody wanted to see shirtless. I mean, there's there's a contrast there, right? You know, Putin was old. He was an alcoholic. He was sick. He was actually really sick in the late 1990s. He was everything that Putin was not. You know, Putin was Mr. Decisive. Putin was Mr. Take Charge. Putin was Mr. Let's keep everyone safe. And that's super important because... Putin's message about keeping Russia safe, fighting terrorism, is central to how we end up with the extremism law. It's this agenda that causes Russia to pass the 2002 extremism law, technically called the law on combating extremist activity. The law says, this is the 2002 extremist law that eventually gets invoked in 2017 to ban the witnesses, that you couldn't incite religious discord. That's the law saying this. You couldn't say, your faith, is superior to someone else's. If you did that, you were an extremist. Or if an organization did that, it was extremist. Or if a publication, a movie, a film, a song did that, it was extremist. Ostensibly, this is about terrorism. But the vagueness of the extremism label lets a lot of room in for a much, much broader definition. Because I think most of us in this room, if we were asked to define extremism, I just hey, I won't put you on the spot to define it, but you would somewhere in your definition probably use the word violence or violent, right? It seems central to extremism that you're advocating the use of violence to achieve political aims, at least to me. This law does not require that. There's, you could be entirely nonviolent, you don't have to advocate violence, you don't have to engage in violence to be an extremist. When it comes down to it, the law is so broad that the label extremism really could apply to any faith because with a few exceptions, Unitarians, etc. cetera, Pretty much every religion makes some capital T truth claims. I mean, that's part of what makes a religion a religion. It's part of why a religion advocates you joining that church and not this church, right? We have XYZ beliefs. We think they're true. We think this other faith has XYZ beliefs, which we don't think are true, right? Doing that, that kind of comparison, is extremism according to this law. Obviously, though, there's the law, and then there's the application of the law. So those could be two very different things. I would say it was not the intent of the parliament in Russia to pass a law that would ban religion. Um, Far from it. I think some of the impetus for the law came out of orthodoxy. But it's not lost on believers, including the Orthodox Church. This law is, whoa, this law is real vague, right? This law is really broad. And even if the state is not signaling at all that it wants to use it to ban religion, a lot of people were uncomfortable with the fact that it could do that. And so uh, in 2015, you get a fix to the law that's meant to negate, in theory, the worst possible scenario, which is that they would use the law to come after traditional religion. So the 2015 fix says you can't use the law to go after major traditional religious texts. Um, it names the Bible, it names the Quran, a couple other texts in particular. Those could never be declared extremist. So at least in theory, when they go back and look at the law in some degree, it seems like they're eager to avoid overreach. But at the same time, or slightly thereafter, they pass a whole other set of expansion laws to extremism that go in the opposite direction and create this whole web of regulations, particularly on the internet, for anyone found violating extremist laws. Again, it's supposed to be about keeping Russia safe from terrorism. The new expansion is pretty clearly aimed at anyone who wants to express any public opinion contrary to the current political state, Putin policy. Let me give a couple examples just so we're clear like what the enforcement has been so far according to this new set of laws if you went on facebook in russia a friend of yours was talking about some corrupt bureaucrat in your town and how much of a jerk he was and you were like totally agree share right or even less you're like less of a committer on facebook so you just like it you're an extremist and that's not an exaggeration case that actually happened a man was given two years in prison for reposting, he didn't write the article, he reposted it with the title Crimea is Ukraine. He had 12 friends. So this is not an article that got a lot of circulation and he didn't write it. And it was on Contact, in case you're curious, it wasn't on actual Facebook, um, the Russian equivalent of Facebook. Another example, um, a woman is currently facing extremism charges because she had a whole bunch of stupid memes. Well, all memes are kind of stupid, I guess. Um, <laughs> but one was a, a group of nuns, and they're like standing outside of a church about to light up cigarettes. And the caption says, quick, light up while there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> so we can judge them. I, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but there's, uh, there's a person facing extremism charges for, sh- for saving a meme. So he didn't share it. He saved it on his account, which was a picture of Jon Snow as Jesus with the text, Jon Snow is risen. Truly, he is risen, which is like a play on what orthodox people say to one another at Easter. So I just bring up some of these examples so it's clear, it's not just Russia wrote a really bad law that was super broad and banned everything, but that they're enforcing that law with that level of sort of broad application. And they're spending resources doing this for things that almost all of us have done this week, right? We've all posted something on Facebook, shared a stupid meme, told a bad joke, et cetera. And these are serious penalties that's not, these are not like misdemeanor levels. This is felony charges. You're categorized as an extremist. a criminal conviction, it's an extremely large fine, or it's years in prison. the, the new expansion laws also ratcheted up um, the amount of time in prison if you get convicted. Just la- I think it was last year, um, a young man who's a blogger went into an Orthodox church playing Pokemon Go. This was probably the most famous one. I don't, has anyone heard about this? He went in filming himself playing Pokemon Go in an Orthodox church. At the end, he kind of turns the camera and says, I haven't found the rarest of all Pokemons, Jesus. Um, <laughs> And he, po- he posted this on YouTube, three and a half years in prison. Now, that one got a lot of media attention, and so they ended up suspending the sentence, I think because of the media attention. But again, criminal conviction is essentially a terrorist that's going to follow him the rest of his life. He's a young, he's, you know, a young college student. Let's bring all of this back to the witnesses, because even before that expansion of the law, witnesses were already starting to feel on pretty thin ice with the initial extremism legislation. Officials in the town of Taganrog, which is in the south of Russia, uh, decided to test whether or not they could use the 2002 law to bar the witnesses from registration. Um, These were congregations that had already had registration. They said, you're a bunch of extremists. You're no longer registered. The witnesses disagreed. It went to the courts, and the courts cited for uh, the local officials. There were similar cases that followed, and these were actions against the organization, um, saying the organization of witnesses itself was extremist. At the same time, you had other officials in Tag and the Rock, but also elsewhere, looking at religious literature put out by the witnesses and saying, hold on, is some of this literature extremist by the letter of the law? And so in the same time that you had the cases against the organization, by 2010, I think it's 52 publications of the Jehovah's Witnesses are on this federal list of banned publications. And real broad stuff. I think um, it's by 2010 that like, Children's Book of Bible Stories is on there. I mean, stuff that you'd really have to search to find it to be extremist. Now, all of these court cases are started by local officials using the laws and mechanism to go after witnesses. And this is what gets this sent up ultimately to the Russian Supreme Court, undertakes a review of all these cases, which are piling up. And then in April 2017, you know, makes this decision to essentially affirm what local officials have been saying, that witnesses, the organization itself, is extremist. To use the court's term, the witnesses were liquidated. So this meant the state had the right to seize all of the property belonging to the witnesses. They had this sprawling administrative complex outside of St. Petersburg. This is where their full-time staff lived. This is where administrative work went on, some printing work went on. That's all taken over by the state after April 2017. It's now a science laboratory. Um, The state gave it to a science laboratory to use. You can't have a Kingdom Hall, which is their equivalent of a church anymore. You can't have a convention in public space. You can't hand out religious literature from the organization. You can't sign on to the internet and just go to JW.org, the international website. Uh, Of course, the state is assuring the witnesses during this time period that you can continue to believe whatever you want, right? But this was exactly the kind of freedom that they've had in the Soviet period. No one can take away the freedom of your internal thoughts. But that's not very much freedom, particularly in an ostensibly democratic society. And remember I mentioned earlier the 2015 amendment that said you couldn't ban the Bible as extremists? Well, huh. you probably figure I was going to circle back to that, right, because it turns out you can. Um, so as soon as the 2017 decision happened, um, and, and they're kind of going through the motions of banning all of the Jehovah's Witnesses' literature, well, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the Bible, and they kind of really wanted to ban it, despite it obviously being a Bible, and despite it obviously then being protected under this amendment. And so what they did was they found some experts, I'll use the term loosely, who went through this Bible and said for a number of really technical reasons, despite it clearly containing all of the passages and chronology and the order you would expect to see in a Bible, if you saw it, you'd say this is clearly a Bible. No, it's not a Bible, so it's fine that we ban it. So uh, even the amendment that they had passed that was supposed to protect against some of the worst excesses of the law is really not doing that, it's protecting the mainstream religions, which really don't need the protection, and it's not doing that. It's actually being abused against um, groups like the witnesses. I mean, overall, the evidence so far in the year since the decision, and it's still early, just strongly suggests the federal government is fully committed to enforcing this ban. As of today, there are several dozen witnesses under house arrest or in jails. Um, that's probably going to continue to go up. I mentioned the case that was just very recent, where you know there was the roundups in Kirov. There continue to be more, much more police raids on the homes of individual witnesses, just having the religious literature, including stuff that you would have had before the ban. So like that's not grandfathered in. Anything that you would have that's on that list makes you in violation of the law. And again, I want to just stress uh, with the social media examples as well, these, these, being in violation is a big deal. I mean, we're talking 10 years of hard labor in a prison is what's awaiting some of these people um, if they're convicted. There's a particularly lengthy case going on against one man, Dennis Christensen. Um, and that case is kind of interesting because uh, he's actually not a Russian citizen. He's Danish. He was picked up at a service in a kingdom hall that was still open a few weeks after the decision. And sorry, he's been in pretrial detention with the state now for 500 some days. Um, and, under, and the trial has been going on since February. and doesn't seem close to completion either. And if he's convicted again, 10 years. Which kind of makes sense if you think about what he's being accused of, which is organizing a terrorist organization, essentially, right? That's, that's the technical thing he's being accused of. Even more worryingly, the state has taken to publicly threatening to use the decision as a justification to revoke custody rights from parents. So um, this is something the court has publicly stated, that um, if you're a parent who's involved in an extremist organization, that could be grounds for losing the rights to have custody of your children. Now, has it done that yet? No, um, thankfully, but why signal it, right? Why publicly mention that you could do that um, unless at least you're attempting to intimidate this particular religious minority or you plan to do it in the future? A final note, just regarding the current situation, not all of the pressure on the witnesses right now is coming from the state. I mentioned the cases in the schools, but there's been a lot of sort of generalized ill will towards the witnesses in Russia for a long time that goes back to the Soviet period it continued into the period of toleration in the 90s and for those who didn't like the witnesses already who didn't want them in their communities already this law is a kind of you know nod that you can do whatever you want now there's been even before the ban when the witnesses were in this kind of nebulous period of legality there were arson attacks on kingdom halls there was an arson attack on an individual's home, so not even a, a church building, but a private home. Uh, people have been attacked. People have been harassed. People have been beaten by the police. You know? And again, this is happening to children whom they go to school, too. So this isn't just witnesses in interactions with authorities. This is, a lot of times, societal violence. Because these events are so recent, it's really hard to know where all this is leading and what this means for others. Um, this is this something that's unique to the witnesses? You know, after all, the witnesses have faced an inordinate amount of state conflict in the 20th century. So some of this does have to do with specific issues between witnesses in modern states. Or or in addition to, is you know, are the witnesses the canary in the coal mine here? Is this the first or not maybe the first signal that Russia's going to further tamp down on religious toleration, further restrict the boundaries of what is acceptable religious practice? And of course, if that's the case, everyone wanted, wants to know who's next, right? What other religions are most vulnerable? Um, I would say at this point, I don't have great answers to those questions. There has been some parallel activity taken against Nursi followers. Um, It's a group of people who follow the writings of a Muslim theologian from the mid-20th century um, from Turkey. Not at all extremist either, much like the Witnesses, um, but they've been singled out. There have been raids on people gathering to discuss Nursi texts, and almost all of the Nursi texts are on the extremist list as well. But overall... Beyond the witnesses in Norsey, there's not a lot of evidence here to suggest that this is some first steps towards a return to Soviet-style norms. I mean, I don't think so at all. So I don't think the Russian government, I don't think Putin has any interest in banning religion. I don't think anyone thinks that. I think, if anything, there's a pretty close working relationship between Putin and the Orthodox Church. Um, you know, unlike the Soviet period, the state is publicly signaling that it wants to protect what it calls traditional religions, even when that means promoting. Some religions over others or denigrating some religions because they represent a threat to others. I think if other faiths are vulnerable, it will be faiths that mirror the Witnesses in a couple ways. You know, one, they're evangelizing, and they're evangelizing particularly to ethnic Russians, so they don't kind of play by the rules of kind of agreeing on how the religious marketplace is supposed to be divided up. Or two, like the Witnesses, they're already pretty marginalized, and so there's... A sense in which they might be seen as an easy target would have few defenders if the state decided to take action. But again, this is really speculative at this point, and I would hesitate to name religions that I think are specifically vulnerable. In fact, my sense is that the other group, other than witnesses um, who are most vulnerable to prosecution under these laws is young people. All of the, There's a lot of social media cases. I mean, I, I picked my favorite because they're ridiculous examples, but there's so many right now, and it really does seem like the state is devoting a lot of resources to policing social media to policing public expressions online, I think it's an area where it feels it has the least control and it's trying to change that. Um, I think that's going to have, already has had a chilling effect on expressions of opinions online. And can Russia really regulate to the internet to the point where it would not be a platform for alternative ideas? Probably not, but it really seems to want to try right now. We're on a bit firmer ground though when we talk about what this means for the witnesses. I mean, it's difficult to say with any certainty, but I think there's some general conclusions we can draw. Um, One, the witnesses have a rich history of surviving much more difficult circumstances than this, including in Russia, including in the not recent past, or the not distant past. So in general, there's no example that I can point to, because it doesn't exist, where the witnesses went into a territory, the state had a problem with it, took action against the witnesses to try to get rid of them, and they won, right? There is no state where, As a result of witness-state conflict, the witnesses just stopped existing. They just, you know, were like, all right, we'll not be witnesses anymore. That's not happened. It's not going to happen in Russia. Any sort of basic understanding of history is going to tell you that's not going to happen. So I think we can say safely that the witnesses are going to survive this particular set of conditions. They're going to outlast Putin. That said, I don't want to kind of downplay or minimize the really... Bad situation this creates for individual religious believers. Just because they're going to deal with it and they're going to survive it and they'll figure it out, doesn't mean that it's not really rough right now. In a way, it wasn't 10 years ago to be a witness in Russia. You know, um, I can talk in, in the question and answer if you're curious about some of the ways in which people are adapting. But they really have had to adapt. I mean, you can't. You know, they had a 10-15 year period where they could go and worship in public without fear of persecution. That's just gone now. Um, and what, where the state intends to exactly draw the lines on this ban is unclear, which is not helpful if you're a witness and trying to figure out, you know, what can you and can't you do legally. Um, and then the other set of questions for a witness would be like, how much am I willing to do now, in order just to still feel like I'm practicing my faith, right? So how much do I want to risk? Do I want to keep religious literature in my home? I, that's illegal, but do I really want to just get rid of all of it? What would I even do with it, right? If I want Religious literature going forward. How do I get it? Because again, there's there's workarounds, but some of them are pretty illegal. The website's banned, etc. Do I want to evangelize? Technically speaking, it's a gray area. But you know, I could clearly be charged with spreading extremist ideas to another person if I do that. Um, and I, that's a really difficult set of decisions to weigh up to sort of put back on people. And just because. They're very adaptable doesn't mean that that's not hard. I think we can say with confidence, though, they'll outlast this. I think we can say with confidence the boundaries of what's acceptable religion are narrowing. They've narrowed under Putin. They may continue to narrow. How much they'll narrow is an open question. I think we can say the situation's unlikely to improve in the near future. Um, I know the witnesses have appealed to the European Court of Human Rights. They'll win that case because they've won several similar cases. It won't matter. There's been recent signaling from Putin that they're no longer going to prioritize international decisions over domestic law, even though they're supposed to. So um, unfortunately, international pressure is unlikely to have much of an effect here. Lastly, if we look to our own history with witnesses and the broader history of conflict between witnesses and modern states, I think we can say the Russian situation is not unique. The witnesses' actions and beliefs challenge what states and societies will accept. They demand a broad definition of religious freedom, that has to include the right not to participate in civic life, not to engage in public patriotism, and in some ways not to be part of the secular world in general. That's a tall order. It's made witnesses few friends. Um, even today when I talk about uh, my research, the response is sometimes like, well, the response this week when I told my students was like, to tell like a series of stories about annoying people coming to their door, um, almost all of which involve not witnesses, which is usually clear because they start describing them and you can tell that it's other people's face, And probably also not accurate descriptions of that interaction, regardless. But, you know, I like to tell people that your experience of being annoyed is part of being in a democratic society, right? Because whether or not you want to answer your door, in a broadly democratic society, they should have the right to knock on it. Uh, Having the right to knock is part of a democratic society, just as it was democratic norms that let witness children back into classrooms in the United States in the 40s. The fact that Russia has decided not to move in this direction, I think, is a clear sign they're moving outside of democratic norms, probably have done so for a while. Whether this remains the case is beyond my purview as a historian. We like to deal with the past, so I'll stop with that and I'll take questions. Thank you.